you can read it and you can accept like this is just about God and this is just about faith and this is about people who are looking for meaning in their lives and this is a family story. If it belongs to anyone, it belongs to just humanity. This is In Good Faith, where it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. This week on In Good Faith, which is an interfaith podcast, I'm sure you've noticed, we're talking interfaith specifically, both the art of interfaith living and I'm really pleased about actual interfaith art, which is a whole new thing that I'm really happy to get to. So senior producer Heather Bigley is with me. Hello. As well as our student producer Leah King. Hello. Our guests today come from a neighborhood, sort of, a really big neighborhood. Coming up this August, we're headed to Chicago to attend the Parliament of World Religions. People coming from all over the world with interest in interfaith work, and specifically, we thought, what can we do as a podcast? Well, we can interview people specifically in this area who are doing the work. And I was really touched about how these people spoke about building allies. And as we listen, you'll hear how poignant, actually, this is as a movement. I like the discussion on just general unity and community fostered by interfaith work. Yeah, this isn't we get together and have a quarterly lunch. These are folks who are showing up, literally, for each other. So we ended up interviewing each of our guests individually, but we've organized their answers topically, and so we'll just introduce their voices here to get you acquainted. So we're very excited to bring you the voices of Shoaib Qadri, who's a member of the Islamic Center of Naperville, Illinois. Thank you for inviting me, Steve. It's a pleasure. Bruce Duffield has served as a president in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Chicago, Illinois Temple, and a public affairs specialist. Thank you. My pleasure. Bernie Newman is the past president of Congregation Beth Shalom in Naperville. Well, we call it Chicago land because it doesn't just encompass the city itself, but also the surrounding towns and suburbs. And our last guest is Barb Maloof, who spent her entire career in public service with the city of Chicago and Cook County. And she's also a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. She joined the church later in life, and she is passionate about interfaith work. Well, thank you for inviting me. And so there you have all of our guests. And our first question to them was... Why do you love interfaith work? It tells me that we are so much more alike than we are different. Who you are is the message, and it really builds my testimony. I love interfaith work. I think it's one of the most important things that anyone can be engaged in. That kind of bridge building is just essential for the modern world. And I find that people who want to engage in interfaith activities and dialogues, they're looking to be understood. They want to be respected. Uh, They want to be educated and they want to make connections. And I have found it very fulfilling to be involved in that kind of work, that kind of service. I love those words of bridge building, connections, and getting to know one another that you just used. Uh, Chicago is a great community. We have many, many faiths and ethnicities, backgrounds. It's uh, truly a diverse, I was almost going to say a diverse melting pot, but Ibu Patel would object to that. It's not a melting pot. It's a glorious potluck buffet where everybody brings their best dishes to share. And Chicago is amazing in that way. 400,000 Muslims in the Chicago area. Does that surprise people? Yes, but then I think people are seeing the change in the demographics. So I'm thinking any more, it may not surprise people, especially in the greater Chicago area. You've been leading your mosque's interfaith involvement for years. What is important to you about interfaith work? Why do you want to participate? One of the main reasons we as a Muslim organizations got involved was we felt there was a lot of misinformation out there about Islam and Muslims. So we started off basically to dispel a lot of that misinformation, just to get to know each other. Then that grew into many other activities, but that's how we initially got involved. That is still important that we continue to do that because people, it's better for them to get the 
the right information from the source rather than getting it from other sources. <laughs> so have you seen a change in perception and increased understanding? Thanks to the efforts that we have done, thanks to the efforts of various organizations, both Muslim and other faith organizations that have worked towards building better awareness, better educational campaigns. I have learned to understand all the, first of all, the other Abrahamic faiths, especially the Christians and Judaism. There were a lot of misconceptions and lack of information that I myself had, which helped me expand my horizon, expand my understanding of the different beliefs. There's about 250,000 Jewish people that live in the Chicagoland area. It's probably about, possibly the third largest population of Jews in the United States. In general, most Jews in the area want to be involved with other communities. And it comes from our, our status as a very tiny minority and the fears that we have based on our own experiences over the millennia and even in the last few years that we need allies. And we've seen how it's important when allies will come together and support you in times of challenge and times of tragedy. And we found solidarity with members of the Latter-day Saints community. And we found that bond also with the African-American community and with the Islamic community as well. This topic of solidarity with each other was very important to all of our guests, and I really wanted to dive in and explore that. One of the great things about the interfaith community, and this is Naperville and Chicago more broadly, is that we have each other's backs. And so when something comes up, um, we respond collectively. I think of uh, George Floyd and when all of that unfolded, and uh, the DePage AME Church responded by gathering in a local park to just say, let's come together and mourn what has happened. It was very hastily organized. Just an email went out that DePage AME Church is gathering, and it was inspiring to see the Black leadership on this stage look out at the audience there in the park and see many friends and invite us up. They invited me up. They invited others up from our local mosques and synagogues and temples. And we all had a chance to speak. And as I participate in that, I thought, wow, you know, that's the way it should be. When one of us feels threatened, we all gather and say, no, we're, we're together. You, you can't treat one of us in this minority and expect the rest of us to stand idly by. Now, we know that all of us of whatever faith uh, need to respond to one another and be there when the bad times erupt, as well as to be there when the good celebrations uh, are taking place. And thankfully, we engage in both. Uh, we get together a lot to celebrate and to enjoy the traditions, but when something horrific happens, we're there and we speak for one another. And, you know, that kind of brotherhood, sisterhood relationship, there are a few things sweeter than having a friend who will stand by you in that sort of time. Anytime a particular faith was attacked, all our interfaith partners get together in solidarity. There was one event where a Sikh gentleman was attacked in a hate crime in a neighboring suburb, and ICN hosted a solidarity event, and which was attended by, I'd like to say, at least 18, 19 different faith organizations. And it was a wonderful, wonderful display of solidarity coming together, showing support. You might be familiar with the massacre at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Yes. When a gunman came in and, and killed 11 worshipers during a Shabbat worship service, a Saturday morning worship service. It shook the whole Jewish world. And I remember I was sitting in my synagogue that morning in Naperville, and I happened to look out the window of the sanctuary, and I saw a police car drive right up to our building, which was unusual. And what I found out later was that the Naperville police had been monitoring the national news and heard about this mass shooting in Pittsburgh, and they just wanted to make sure they could protect our Jewish community. They're worried about copycats and that kind of a thing. 
I immediately started getting dozens of calls and emails and texts from all the other members of the interfaith community that I've been involved with for so many years, all wanting to know what they could do, how they could help, how they could offer solidarity. And uh, we decided to have a solidarity program at my synagogue Basically, eight days after that, it was on the Sunday, a week, just eight days after the massacre, we used social media to get the word out. We had 800 people show up at our synagogue for this solidarity program of all different faiths. It was the most people we ever had squeezed into our building. We had about a dozen leaders of all different faiths get up at, at the front on our bima. I guess you might call it an altar at the front of the sanctuary. And each gave a message of solidarity to the Jewish community. And we had members of the Sikh community, the Hindu community, the Islamic community, many different Christian denominations, the Catholic community. We had the chief of police of Naperville speak to us and and other dignitaries. And my Jewish community was just so touched by that, that all of these people would show up for us at a time of real vulnerability. Having this solidarity definitely helps. Our community has really felt that and has made us want to return the favor tenfold. There was another incident I can talk about. It was actually after, there was another shooting. This one was near San Diego in California. It was on a weekend, on a Shabbat, a Saturday. And the very next Friday night, we had about 50 members of the Islamic Center of Naperville showed up at our synagogue and they stood outside as our members were walking in with signs of solidarity saying that they wanted to make sure we felt safe. And they were there in some sense to protect us. And we invited them into our synagogue and we gave them prayer space because they had Muslim prayers that they needed to do in the evening, like we have prayers. And so the Jewish people were praying in one part of the building The Muslim people were praying in a different part of the building, and then we all met together for a reception. It was a very wonderful evening. What was very impressive to me was the hard work that these interfaith partners were accomplishing there in Chicagoland, and they were solving actual problems and ways they found to collaborate to accomplish good for the people in their community and to engage with each other's communities. There are various verses in the Quran as well as sayings of the Prophet, which are hadith, that talk about helping your neighbor, helping your brother. There are instances where it says that helping a person in need is greater than you just spending hours in the mosque. So yes, I definitely feel that it is pleasing to God. And at the end of the day, we all depend on the mercy of God uh, for acceptance and blessings. On the Interfaith Council, we all can come together around the table and help, help solve problems. Programs for hunger and programs to fight violence. The first one I would think about is the Hyde Park uh, Refugee Project. Um, the refugee work is a task force. It's a, like a subunit of the Interfaith Council. We have people from synagogues, we have people from Lutheran Social Services, we have Refugee One, we have people from the mosque, we have representatives from the Baha'i faith community, we have the Unitarian Church here, the university chapel. So it's it's a pretty pretty wide-reaching universe of partners. When President uh, Biden airlifted families from Afghanistan, four of them settled in the Hyde Park area. And uh, our Interfaith Council worked with Refugee One to help these families resettle. And and some congregations took care of the apartments. Our congregation has donated space for ESL classes and for a summer program for youth and other volunteers that are maybe not even part of a denomination but have passed our background check actually visit the homes and tutor one-on-one. That's been extremely rewarding. And the Interfaith Council has been doing this since about 2016 when the Syrian refugees first arrived. A bunch of families came. And then with the coming of the Afghan families and also two families from the Congo, the group came together again. Because we have different task forces that spin off and, and, and have a certain focus. So I've been really very involved with the refugee project in large part because my name, Malouf, is Lebanese. My father and my grandparents came here on a boat. 
And so this project is very near and dear to my heart. So in Naperville, we are truly blessed to have an organization called NILA, uh, the Naperville Interfaith Leaders Association, which has people from, you know, organizations of different faiths. And one of the flagship events that NILA does is an annual World Peace Day, where we have speakers from all the faiths come and talk about, you know, what each of our faiths um, believes in as far as attaining world peace. So that's that's a great, great event where it's, it's a great opportunity for everybody to get together, get to know, know each other in a presentation format as well as a social gathering. Um, and then the other project is Growing Home. Um, it, it, it's about four city blocks uh, in a very underserved community called Englewood. We're working with Jewish community leaders, um, Muslim community leaders, and a lot of not-for-profits are involved in growing home. Things like the Chicago uh, Community Trust, the city of Chicago gave them a big grant. There's a lot of uh, municipal grant money that has also gone into growing home. In terms of the Interfaith Council, the local synagogue here in Hyde Park is a member, and we're looking to expand our work south and west of, of Hyde Park. And the city and a lot of other not-for-profits and the church have gone in and they've taken the, these four huge city blocks and they've made them urban gardens. And they've taken people that are hard to employ and they've given them the skills that they needed to make them employable. They've taught them what it means to show up for work every day. Like if you're someone who's from a drug treatment program or somebody who's being released from jail, you have some place to go. And then what the church did was we donated a truck and we donated a trailer and we donated a bunch of computers so that the people who are in this program could go online and get permanent jobs and find permanent places to live. And it's been great for not only our clergy, but clergy of other denominations because they have a place now that has credibility where they can send people at need. And so Growing Home gives a lot of resource to our clergy, other clergy, and other people in the not-for-profit world to help a population that really needs help. ICN has a free clinic where we have volunteer doctors who every week we have we have patients coming in. And this is open to people of all faiths. ICN has three locations. One of the locations, we've got an entire wing dedicated for the free clinic. And many people, like I said, most of the beneficiaries of a health clinic or a free clinic are people of other faiths. And this is entirely voluntary work by doctors in our, in our community, nurses and other healthcare workers in our community. Even the, the labs are donated, the lab work cost is donated by the clinic. So it's been a fantastic program. We've had uh, annual events where we've had just like a day long free health checkup. And then our music director in Hyde Park created a community choir made up of people from our congregation and other congregations on the South Side. And they sing historically African-American music. And last Sunday, they sang in our chapel and it was awesome. And they're going to go visiting around different chapels. And so that's another interfaith project that I think is divinely inspired. Not my idea, but I love anytime I listen to them or can listen to a rehearsal. And as far as the homeless, we had our youth and the youth of, of the congregation Beth Shalom, the local synagogue, where our youth got together and packed food packages for the homeless. The interfaith work that we do is also important at the local level, because that's when you're really impacting people. You're really impacting children, the youth growing up. And we look to those leaders for some of the guidance that we have, how to conduct interfaith meetings and dialogues and just the leadership that they show in, in getting together with other faces, guidance to us as well. But maybe a message there is that it's really important at the local level to make sure we have this kind of a dialogue going. You're listening to In Good Faith. We'll be right back. Welcome back to In Good Faith. Shoaib and Bernie both told me about an interesting interfaith scripture study group. 
If you ever thought of this, this was a new idea to me. So imagine coming together and discussing the book of Genesis with your Christian, Jewish, and Muslim neighbors, because each of those scriptures and holy books has some form of that account. And to compare notes, that was fascinating. One of the great things we've done in our community um, is we established a whole series of interfaith dialogues. And we were doing this over the course of three or four years. And we would meet Sunday afternoon for about an hour and a half. And we started by looking at the various Bible stories. So they had like 10 or 12 episodes of different stories from the Genesis. And this was a smaller group. It was more a theological discussion where we got together and each of us would have a presentation on what we understood, you know, or what our faith uh, described each of these stories. Like if you take Adam, for example, or Noah or Moses. And these are stories that are common to all three faiths. So when each of us presented, and it was eye-opening and amazing to see how each of us perceived the same story, but a slightly different variation in our beliefs. Uh, and I really, really enjoyed that series. <laughs> and what was remarkable to me was how the stories that I grew up with, you know, I, I consider Moses to be my, my great-grandfather. That's my ancestor. <laughs> and we would talk about how each of our faiths views those particular characters. And there's differences but what that did was it just increased my, um, certainly my respect for the, the other faiths, that they actually saw some of the same important lessons that I had found and that my faith had found in those stories. And it made me feel that my tradition is very genuine, okay? Because when other people are looking at the same stories and coming up with some of the same lessons, it tells me that I must be onto something. <laughs> And of course, all of this experience working with different faith groups must have had an impact on each of these people. So I wanted to dig deeper into that with each of them. It has deepened my faith in so many ways. I can see the hand of God working through these good people that I get to know, and they inspire me and strengthen me in so many ways. They're just countless examples. I admire my Muslim brothers and sisters for how they organize their lives around prayer. And I can learn a lot from that. They are devoted to their prayer and they make sure that their other priorities don't interfere with their prayer. I admire my Sikh and Muslim friends who wear the turban or hijab or my Jewish friends who wear the yarmulke, the kippah, as an outward manifestation of their faith. And they're not ashamed of their faith, even though sometimes they take political heat for it. But they're out there expressing their faith in a public and wonderful way, courageously. And that emboldens me. I, I love the way my Jewish friends honor the Sabbath. The Shabbat experience is I'm sorry to say, a holier experience than often is practiced in the Duffield household. I remember going to a Shabbat dinner with one of my friends. They had invited me, and I had not been to their house before. It was in north side of Chicago. And she said, now, this is how you get there, and GPS doesn't always get you quite right. But if it is after 5.23 p.m., you will not be able to reach me by phone because I turn off my phone when the sun goes down and I don't answer it on the Shabbat, on the Sabbath, until uh, the evening of the following day. And I thought, well, good for you. That's observing the Sabbath in a way that's higher and holier than the, than the Duffields often do. And my Christian friends, my Catholic friends, I love their worship of Holy Week. You know, we could learn something from some of our other Christian cousins about making the Holy Week experience, the Easter experience, more grand than traditionally has been the pattern in my faith. When you talk to people of other faiths, it strengthens your own belief because you see there are so many people who believe in God who use different means to achieve each of their individual faith goals, if you will. But it's amazing, it's good to see that all of us are striving towards similar goals, although the paths may be slightly different, but we all are faith-based organizations, faith-based people. It's really 
made my testimony of the principles that we teach even stronger. Because I realized that people from different faith traditions have many theological beliefs that we have. And I, it also makes me feel like there's a way to reach people that missionaries knocking on their door may not reach them. It's like it says in Matthew, let our light shine. And I think that's what we get to do with the interfaith work. We get to really get to let our light shine. And it's given me a deep appreciation for every blessing in my life. When I think about the families that we serve with the Refugee Project, recently I went on vacation. And when I came back, the mother shared that she was concerned that I might not come back. And I think it was important for them to realize that people go on vacation and then they come back. And I think that's just kind of part of what they've lived with. And so I see situations and then I step back in my own prayer life and I think, wow, I have all this gratitude for all the blessings that I have. I know what my grandparents lived through before they came to this country. But in terms of the families that I deal with, I haven't had to live through anything like that. And so it really makes me count my blessings rather than complain about what I don't have. That was Barb Maloof, Bernie Newman, Bruce Duffield, and Shoaib Kadri uh, from Chicago. And I just loved listening to them and these really concrete ways that they are solving problems in their neighborhood. Yeah, in their neighborhood, but not in these separate little silos, like doing it at the same time but separately. Right. Besides their own individual projects, they really are doing this as an interfaith council. And I just sense so much respect they have learned for each other and for each other's faiths. For me, it was valuable that they wanted to get involved in interfaith work to kind of correct this misinformation about their religion and uh, misconceptions they had about other religions. But instead, they founded this strong community that they can rely on and that will show up for them even when not asked to. They will come with signs. They will come pray in the same synagogue, even though they worship differently. Yeah. Yeah. That story of the Muslims and the Jews sharing prayer space in a synagogue, I think I'll remember that for a long time. Yeah. So I had always thought interfaith work was we'll meet together in a committee, we'll get to know one another and say maybe we'll come visit your congregation. But there's so much more to this. It's the rubber meets the road part. And so I realized when a local congregational church was putting out a a, a plea for help because they needed some landscaping help and they needed more people than they had in their congregation. And so my wife and I show up with our gloves and our shovel and I look around and I see a guy from work that I work with almost every day and he's there with his four kids and he wanted his kids to have the experience not just of helping people within their own community, he wanted them to look outside of their community So that's a bit about the art of interfaith living. So, Heather, tell us about actual interfaith (laughs) art, because this was fascinating to me. Yeah, so recently at BYU, we had a student exhibit called A Catholic Reads the Book of Mormon. And I saw the exhibit, and then I had to meet Candace Brown. She is the student who put this exhibit together. She just graduated from BYU in curatorial studies. And... um, And she had been working with Walter Whipple, who was a teaching professor emeritus of Polish here at BYU. And in 1990 to 1993, Whipple served as the president of the Poland Warsaw Mission for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And these two people knew an artist named Roman Sledge. And I wanted to talk to them because, one, I love art. I love the way it can touch you and teach you things that you didn't even know you needed teaching. I like this interview, too, because my mom is an artist, and I would grow up going to art museums with my family, and my dad would always try to ask my mom, is this a good art piece, or is this good? And she would just respond, well, how does it make you feel? Mm. And so I think the power of emotion in artwork is really strong, and I think that it's discussed really well in this interview. To me, the most fascinating imagination experiment would be someone hands me a book of Scripture to a faith that's not mine, And I've never seen any of their kind of art, their style of art. And then I read it, and I'm supposed to sculpt something or paint something. And what I would come up with 
would the adherents of that faith look at it and go, oh, oh no, you have gotten that <laughs> so wrong? Or would they say, that kind of puts a new perspective. That's interesting what you drew out of that. And so I got to speak with both Candace and Walter in this interview. And one of the things you'll be asking yourself is, where do I see this art? Well, you can go to bookofmormoncatalog.org and you can search Roman Schledge, which is spelled S-L-E-D-Z. So that's bookofmormoncatalog.org and search for Roman S-L-E-D-Z. The first time I met Walter, I so I was going to interview him for the BYU Museum of Art, Souls and Sacraments religious exhibit, and he was so kind and welcoming and just started showing me all of his sculptures and teaching me how to distinguish between the different artists and how to identify like marks of just some really good folk sculpture. I remember he like opened up the all of his closets in his bedroom and started just pulling out more and more sculptures, <laughs> handing them to me, and I didn't know what to do with them because there were so many. How did you meet Mr. Sledge, and how did this relationship develop that he was going to read the Book of Mormon, first of all, and then sculpt well, things? With meeting him, I don't recall when I met him. I do recall that in November of our first year in Poland, our daughter attended the American School of Warsaw. One day when I picked her up from school, and as we drove back into the main part of town, our daughter said, Christmas is approaching, and we ought to have something to put in the mission home. We ought to have a nativity scene. We drove into the, near the old market square of Warsaw, walked into a folk art shop, and I let her choose a nativity while we were in the shop, I noticed a lot of other sculptures. But our very first sculpture, our daughter picked. And then the lady in the art shop, when she realized that I was serious about pursuing what was the highest quality of folk art, she took me under her wing. She had been a consultant with museums in acquiring their collections, and she was very well-versed in folk art. She knew all of the artists and was able to evaluate their works. And so I decided that I wanted to purchase 10 sculptures, one by each of the 10 top folk artists, according to her. And she pulled out a St. Sebastian of Schledge. It shows St. Sebastian being pummeted with arrows. I wasn't particularly impressed with it because Schledge leaves his sculptures rough cut. He doesn't sand off the chisel marks or anything. And she says, this is one of our best artists. And she gave me the option of returning sculptures if I didn't learn to like them. So I took the Schledge home. Our daughter ridiculed it. Schledge, the wrath of a second grader. <laughs> yeah, Schledge put a couple of arrows in the breast of St. Sebastian. And our daughter would pull those arrows out and hide them somewhere in the house. I started noticing the expressive quality of Schledge's work. He has an inherent sense of anatomy. So his figures, they look real, whatever position they're in. And they're expressive. Don't mind the chisel marks that he leaves, but they're expressive. And he has a narrative gift. He's able to really present the essence of a story. Well, I decided I wanted to acquire a few of his pieces, but they were difficult to get a hold of. He lives in a remote area of Poland, probably the least populated part of Poland, and he lives in Malinówka, which would translate something like a raspberry patch. Mm. It's not even on a map. Near the end of our mission, this would have been in June of 1993, my son and I visited him. And as we drove near to his place, I said to Timothy, if he has any sculptures available, we can only buy one. And when we walked into Sledge's house, he had a table full of sculptures, maybe a dozen or more. And my son said, Dad, when we go back to Provo, we won't be able to find any sculptures by Sledge for sale in Provo. We better take what we can afford. So we, we emptied our pockets on Sledge's table yeah. And I even went out to the car to look at the gas gauge to make sure that we could get back to Warsaw. <laughs> and we gave him every last grosh that we had, and we were able to purchase three sculptures. 
I decided that I would want to keep in touch with Sledge after we returned to Utah. I took an inventory of our sculptures. I don't know how many we had by then, of various artists, maybe 200 or so. And I noted the gaps that we had in our Bible representations. And I gave him a wish list of Old and New Testament sculptures. And over the next, I don't know how many years, he completed that list one by one. Oh, wow. He had a son who was savvy with computers, and so he photographed each and every sculpture that he had completed for me to see if I approved of it. He would send send me an image of it over the internet. And, of course, they were fantastic. So I gave him the green light, and he mailed these biblical scenes to me one by one. And eventually, I don't recall how many he had done for me, maybe 40 or 50. So I realized that I was beginning to run out of money. <laughs> these sculptures of his were not expensive but nevertheless, being in education, I had limited financial resources. And so I wrote Sledge and said, I think it's time for me to close down the shop. My collection is large enough, and it's been very nice knowing you. And he wrote back and said, oh, don't quit. Don't you recall that when your son and you visited me in June of 93, you gave me a copy of the Mormon book? I have read the Mormon book, and I would like to do the following six episodes from the Mormon book. And I said, go ahead. Right. And so he sent those one at a time. Of course, it took him some time to carve them. He did those six, and we ended up with, I think, maybe 13 or 14. 13, and I think 14, including the Joseph Smith The Joseph Smith vision. story, yeah. yeah. So there are several of those Book of Mormon stories that I'm not aware of any LDS artists who've done those topics. This is what struck me as I came upon this exhibit in the library. Like, I saw a little poster, and I was like, what is this? And I followed the breadcrumbs down the <laughs> stairs, and then I come across these wood carvings, and I found I was really moved. And one of the reasons I was really moved was this is a person coming at the Book of Mormon without any kind of guidance. No one is saying to this person, these are the important stories. I'm a convert myself, and my approach to the Book of Mormon has, I feel like, has always been heavily like, here, let us teach you what you should be getting out of this book. And here is someone who's come across the book and been inspired by it and picked stories and themes that perhaps the rest of us aren't really paying attention to. And that, to me, was incredible. So I'm curious about your reactions to what he chose and when you approach his work and his sort of interpretation of the Book of Mormon, what is it that you're seeing? Before I was an intern at the MOA, I was actually an intern with the Book of Mormon Art Catalog. It's this new digital database of Book of Mormon art, and I'd been working with them cataloging, like, thousands of images from LDS artists. So my attention to Book of Mormon art was like very high already. And I went to Walter's house for the first time. I was seeing all these Bible scenes and I started noticing a few that I was like, I'm pretty sure that's like Lehi and this looks like Korahor. What's going on here? And I asked, I think I asked you like, did you find a Mormon Polish artist? Because I couldn't believe that a Polish artist would have just come across the Book of Mormon like that and just would have been like, oh, I'll carve this. And I was just amazed because they are beautiful. And I love that he picks up on some of the stories that, like everybody picks up on. He has this beautiful sculpture of Jesus and the Nephite children that is just so tender and beautiful. It has Jesus and all of these mothers and fathers holding their little babies and angels all around them. It's fantastic. And then he has some, he has like a scene of the battle with Captain Moroni and Zarahemna. That's just so nothing I've ever seen before. And then he also had Lehi's first vision from First Nephi chapter one. And so as I started, like I started thinking like, why did he pick up on those scenes? And realizing like these are really key moments that we tend to pass over because we just don't, for whatever reason, don't talk about them as much. But they really are foundational to our beliefs in Christ and to our beliefs in like, the plan of salvation or to our beliefs about peace and community and everything. And I just was blown away, I think. 
mm. by how perceptive perceptive he was of what matters most in a way that like I who've been a member my entire life had just never stopped to think oh that is a huge deal what about you Walter when you saw these original six or the final 13 what struck you about this person's interpretation one thing I know about Mr. Sledge is he's reverent Hmm. he's respectful of sacred things He's a man of very few words, and he has approached the Book of Mormon with that same reverence. I learned something from this. I was a missionary in Switzerland, and I was shy. I was anxious, lest when I handed someone the Book of Mormon, they would make fun of it. Right. Or belittle it in some way. So I was filled with anxiety as I approached people about the gospel and whatnot. But this has taught me that the Book of Mormon is universal. It was written to everybody. That includes Mr. Sledge. So I think we should not be so possessive about the Book of Mormon. We should not think of it as ours, even though we hold the copyright and we do the printing of it, but it actually belongs to the whole world. It belongs to Mr. Sledge as much as it belongs to me. You're listening to In Good Faith. We'll be right back. Welcome back to In Good Faith. And there's something for me that's so helpful as a member, and and we've probably said it in some ways, of having someone else say, this is also important. Many of us have experienced reading the Book of Mormon every four years in Sunday school, reading the Book of Mormon ourselves in our homes. How do you keep that experience relevatory, right? And this artist is helping me have that experience again, which I'm really grateful for. Are you aware of any LDS artist that has done Korahor? I... Or has done the calling... (laughs) Let's turn to the expert over there. (laughs) It's extremely rare. Korahor is extremely rare. It's in the Illustrated Book of Mormon that Robert Barrett did uh, in the 80s. Okay. But very few other people touch it. How about the, the calling of the three Nephites? Similarly, I think Barrett did it. I think maybe one or two others have touched on it, but there aren't really super well-known How about 1st Nephi chapter 1? There is like half a dozen and like mostly super abstract or, again, Barrett or for some like children's illustrated Book of Mormon. It's super rare. Yeah. yeah. Nephi baptizes his chosen 12. Oh, I don't think it That's quite unique in the way it's represented. Like it doesn't show the immersion in water. It does show them they, they look like they're coming out of water and their clothes are like waterlogged and stuff. Yep. But it's showing specifically the moment they receive the Holy Ghost. Nephi is at the center and Jesus Christ is right above him. And above Jesus Christ is the dove of the Holy Spirit. And above the Holy Spirit is Heavenly Father painted in white because there's this, the Catholic belief that God is spirit. So it's this straight line going down. And then out of Jesus's fingers are coming these rays of golden light that fall on each apostle. And there's a little bit of a flame at the top of their head where you can see like they're being cleansed with this fire of the spirit and they're receiving the Holy Ghost and they're having this powerful moment. It's extraordinary and so beautiful and very Catholic looking. There's so many little tender moments in them that as you look closer at the sculptures, he incorporates all of these women and children into stories where they're not traditionally depicted. Each figure that he carves is like this individual expression, and it can be full of this kind of curiosity or worry or awe, and it's just something that needs to be looked at, needs to be seen, to be understood. So I'd really encourage anyone who listens to this, anyone who hears about this, to go actually look at the art. We have an artist who's bringing a whole artistic style to this subject matter that we aren't used to seeing applied to mm-hmm. this subject matter. So I'd love to get your thoughts on what that is like as well as you look at his art and what he's trying to convey with these 13 sculptures. He does not typically use some of the markers that we would identify as Roman Catholic, such as halos. He, he will put wings on angels. How else would we identify that they're angels? But it, it looks more human he represents them as real people. 
He has a sense of motion, and all this is intuitive. He hasn't really had any training. There's something that you can't really express in words, some of the reaction that you have and the inspiration you feel when you look at some of these works. It doesn't lend itself to being cataloged in words. This was my experience when I saw them. I just, I, I had this experience of wanting to go very fast and look at all, what is all of it? And then coming back to it and wanting to slow way down. How does art impact our experience of our faith, or how does it impact our faith? I think in one really important aspect of it is that you can't really think about or comprehend something if you don't have some vehicle for comprehending it. Like, it's hard to just sit in an empty room with blank walls and just be like, and now I'm going to think about God. And it's very abstract. It can be hard for you to, like, figure out what do you really believe or trying to find your own experiences to like anchor your beliefs. Once you have art though, it gives you kind of like a stepping off point. It's like for me, I think for when I look at a piece of art, religious artwork, it grounds me and says, okay, here's where you are. And now think about all of the kind of implications of this and think about how if it's a portrait of Christ. Now think about what it would be like to be face-to-face with him. Think about what it would be like if you could look into his eyes or if it's a story from the Bible, it might say, okay, think about if you were in this scene. And that's why I think it's so important to have so many different variations of art depicting Bible stories or Book of Mormon stories because every artist does interpret it a little bit differently. And every time you look at a different piece of art that depicts this story, you enter into it in a slightly different way almost like cross-referencing it, you start kind of discovering the overlap and you're seeing like a clear picture of, okay, this is who like Jesus is to me or this is who God is to me. And it's informed by all of the, all of this art that helped me, you know, launch into those stories and launch into those and think about it in a way that is personal to me. That was well articulated. I have this image of a mosaic, right? We use all these different pieces, right, to form a greater whole Can you imagine this happening? So I'm just thinking of this. The poster or the name of your exhibit, Candace, was A Catholic Reads the Book of Mormon. And I started to think, can we imagine this happening with other pairings, if we will? A Latter-day Saint reads the Quran and then makes art out of the Quran, or a Jew reads the New Testament. Would that be something we're interested in pursuing? And what's the benefit, I guess, is the question. What do you guys think about that? There is, I think, there are definitely cases. I think there are a lot of stories that I've been able to find on the internet and stuff of those exact things happening, those kind of someone from our faith reading the Quran or... Jewish reading the New Testament or something that does happen. I think Sledge was maybe unique for like how humble he was and like how just matter of fact and like, okay, here it is. But I think it's beautiful and it is valuable because I had this experience with the Interfaith Dialogue Committee at BYU. I was presenting the exhibit to them and walking them through some of the sculptures and things. And there were students and people there who were not members of our faith and who were very moved by it. And we're saying, because the theme of it is, as Walter's kind of said, this isn't owned by the church. It's not that you have to either read the Book of Mormon and convert or never read the Book of Mormon again because like clearly you didn't get it and therefore it's not for you. You can read it and you can accept like this is just about God and this is just about faith and this is about people who are looking for meaning in their lives. And this is a family story. And having this art that just represents this is for everyone. This is just for humanity. I think having, you know, I'm really intrigued by the idea of like a Latter-day Saint artist exploring the Quran and making art about it and exploring like this isn't just for the Muslim community. This is for everyone. If you approach it with respect and you just recognize this is about faith and this is about the best way to live and to live with this charity and this godlike love and this faithful religious focus in your life there's i think there's so much space for that and i think it really helps to create like connection and understanding across communities to recognize what other communities have to offer and it's not about ownership it's not about who owns what it's more like sharing and saying if it belongs to anyone it belongs to just humanity 
the interview was with Walter Whipple, a teaching professor emeritus in the Department of Germanic and Slavic Languages here at Brigham Young University, and with Candace Brown, who recently graduated in art history and curatorial studies, and put together this exhibition, A Catholic Reads the Book of Mormon Folk Carvings of Roman Sledge. One of my favorite things was hearing Walter analyze what had happened from this Polish artist and that he is saying he realizes that it's for everyone, meaning he could read the Quran and not say that has good stuff for those people. Yeah. He said it's for everyone, meaning it's also for me and the art helps me access that. Yeah. I really loved this idea that all of these sacred scriptures are for all of us and there's something we can learn from them. And as I as I said in the interview, I loved this idea of learning something new about scripture that I'd already studied lots and lots and lots. And here was a new thought and a new way to present it to me that taught me even more. I think it's a good reminder, too, that we can talk about our religions and our faith without trying to convert other people and without trying to say this is the truth and the only truth. We can take truths from different books because they are meant for everyone, and we can share our book or our tradition with people, and they can take from it and even make artwork out of it, and they can take from it what they need at the time. One of my favorite traditions growing up was on Christmas Eve, we would go to a Catholic Mass and because one of our family friends would play the organ. And I remember I was really young, but I remember thinking the cathedral was beautiful, and I remember the music was powerful, and I think those things, the art and the music, can speak across faith tradition and bring us together. So we heard from four different neighbors in Chicagoland who are part of interfaith work. And we heard about two people who discovered some interfaith art that was very meaningful to them personally. And Walter said in this last interview something that as he thought about the artist, quote, he's reverent and respectful of sacred things, which I think applies to the interfaith work as well as the interfaith art. Are beauty influencers and hair removal ads taking over your Instagram feed? Want to feel more uplifted as you scroll? Follow us on Instagram at In Good Faith Podcast for exclusive video content from our interviews. Many thanks to Shoaib Kadri, Barb Malouf, Bernie Newman, Bruce Duffield, Candace Brown, and Walter Whipple for speaking with us today. This episode was produced by Heather Bigley. Our production team also includes Emma Engebretson, Leah King, and Katerina Martinich. Our post-sound engineer is Daniel Phillips. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. If you like the show, we hope you share it with a friend and leave a comment or review where you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter at In Good Faith Pod, Instagram and Facebook at In Good Faith Podcast. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join me again soon, right here in Good Faith.